you can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real welcome one and all to a movie reviewing reappraising and genre hopping podcast on the playlist podcast network this is be real my name's chance solemn pfeiffer and I'm Noah Ballard. We're here again to talk about movies bound by some uh, topic genre human. And in this case, it's human. We're going to talk about the work of Miranda July. Noah, when I say Miranda July, what do you think of? I think of a lot of things. I think of uh, an indie movie uh, icon. I think of a well-published author. Um I think of a performing art person. Mm-hmm. Uh, performance artist, I think they're sometimes called. <laughs> yeah, performance artist. That's a good way to phrase it. Uh, yeah, I think of a of a creator type uh, that I have interacted with in my forays into independent cinema of the early 2000s to the present. Uh, yeah, I knew who you meant when you said, you do you want to do the Miranda July movies? It wasn't a quiz. It wasn't a quiz. I'm just curious. I think that's a, I think the multifacetedness is a good way to start with her. I heard her say in an interview this morning, or that I listened to this morning, not that she gave this morning, that she, the person She was, was like, on the Sunday shows talking about Trump's tax <laughs> yeah, returns and right. also like how she pigeonholes her career. Yeah, she was talking to George Stephanopoulos about uh, when when's the next <laughs> when's the next novel coming, um, but no, the person was like, so like, what are you doing next? How do you know what you want to do next? And she's like, it's not magical. I literally get done with the movie and say it's time for a book, and I get done with the book and say it's time for a movie. And I think that that is sort of funny because certainly people who primarily identify as authors have made movies, and certainly people who primarily identify as directors have written books. But um, depending, like, when you first encounter Miranda July, you might think of her way more as one or the other, um, and it's a genuine balance with her. Absolutely. There's a super fascinating piece about her recently in Vulture. Yeah, the about Alex e. Young similarly, piece. Yeah, about similarly, like, what her work life looks like. And she, like, keeps this apartment that she's had for, like, 15 years in L.A. that she also is married... Uh, to another director and has a child to Mike Mills, uh, but sh- to Mike Mills. Yeah. Right. But she leaves the, like the house they share together for a couple days a week and just like works and works and works and then has no responsibility and then comes back and is like the person she needs to be in the world, uh, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, enviable if a bit strange. Um, and the article kind of pokes that she could be making money hand over fist working for brands or like working on, you know, backup writing for and rewrites for Hollywood screenplays uh, and even publishing a bit more, but she chooses to like live very minimally. I mean, to me, when you said Miranda July, you know, kind of the profile I think of is like such a cool person. I wonder how they make money. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of, and apparently she doesn't, uh, which is interesting in its own right. Yeah. It's not a, just not a priority. Um, but it, that's an interesting. It's an interesting tie-in to Cajillionaire, which is her her new movie um, that's quote unquote out <laughs> from Focus Features right now. Um, I think it debuted this past weekend. If you are in a state that is playing 
kajillionaire. Um, but your and of course, my question, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my please. question was, what does the Venn diagram look like of states that are currently open for movie business, and then states where there's a desperate need to see the latest Miranda July movie? Exactly. Probably the- two cr- two circles about three feet apart from each other. You have some very specific Cheyenne, Wyoming residents who are like blitzing their completely open movie theaters right now. Yeah, I mean, it made two hundred and fifteen thousand uh, dollars, so that's they're out there. That's cool. We're gonna talk about all three of her movies: um, Kajillionaire, Me, and You, and Everyone We Know, and The Future. Um, but you said you like her writing quite a bit i think over text um tell me what you think of uh when i when i say miranda july writing what do you think of oh i think she had a yeah her short story collection nobody belongs here more than you uh is really interesting i haven't gone back to it so it could be the kind of thing where you know when i saw garden state as a teenager i thought it was mind-blowing and then i read it as an adult and it was like okay what is this Uh um but i remember it being a pretty incisive uh, story collection and then it, it got some like pretty big name publications during the publicity for it so you know it wasn't james franco or anything and the first bad man her debut novel in 2015 was a pretty big deal i mean i remember people at bars in lincoln nebraska just like had the first bad man out reading it in the afternoon yeah it sold a fair amount of copies it has that iconic just like plain Helvetica white text over black backgrounds. Uh, that's pretty easy to spot. But yeah. So, I mean, she's revered in that space as well. And people are always comparing. You know, I was looking up the the details of the publication uh, before the podcast. And it's so funny, like on the database that collects uh, like deals and uh, deal makers and stuff like that. It's almost hard to find her deal because so many people compare it to her in the description of new sales. Hmm pitched in the vein of Miranda July. Oh, I see. She's used as like a qualifier in the publishing industry now. Interesting. So, I don't know, sort of hallmarks of her artistic voice. I was listening to the audiobook of First Bad Man this morning. Um, she's very funny as a writer, but always in a, a people lost in the world and sort of the uh, the humor of how small they are and how small all of us are as we uh, make a big deal out of our... Um, you know, our dreams deferred and our weird encounters with authority. She's, she's, she's really funny when it comes to just like how weird it is when you meet someone whose, you know, job affords them some social authority. Like anybody who goes to see a doctor or um, walks into an office in any of these movies or in her books, like those are always kind of hilarious interactions, like how little power the normal person seems to have. Right. That, that is interesting, too. And you almost feel like these movies and these characters, you know, as absurd as their gambits are to make connections with each other, that this whole thing is kind of tethered to a really incisive observer about how the real world works. Like, that's yeah. what I kind of like about her movies, too, is that, you know, you never feel like the world is different. You feel like this these stories could exist uh in time, and, you yeah. know, and each character, each each movie has like one specific character or a couple of characters that are like these are the real people, and mm-hmm. here are like the weirdos that you know the encounters therein are like the drama of the movie. Uh, but it's interesting that she doesn't go like 
full Kaufman or something and just like get rid of reality and be like, right. this is LA in my mind. Exactly. I think Kaufman is the comparison because Kajillionaire might be the most sort of heightened of the three we're going to talk about tonight. But there's the point of that movie is still the truth of how, you know, humans are in their houses or wherever they lay their head down at night um, and the essential relationship that parents and children have, not like, <laughs> I'm this fucked up guy who dreams something so big that I was in the dream. <laughs> right, exactly. Maybe a, a thing to talk about real quick is, uh, so her artistic legend starts in Portland, um, where I live, where she's like part of the the riot girl scene and starts doing uh, performance art and starts writing. Um, and, but all of these movies by 2005, she's in LA. The films all really speak to that. I think you're seeing a kind of unbridled kind of communal creativity that I associate with, uh, you know, some dream of, of Portland, but, um, but the movies are all fucking street parking. You know what I mean? There's a West Coast sensibility to her, I think, where it's like all these people waiting for something horrible to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, the way people in L.A. or even like people in the Pacific Northwest after that New Yorker piece where it's like the big one's coming. Totally. You know, everyone, even if it's not stated like in the Me and You and Everyone We Know debut here, there's still that lingering like nothing fucking matters. We're all dead anyway. Yeah. Yep, the future reckons with that as well. So should we start with Kajillionaire, the new one? There's a camera there, there, and there. Cash. Nope, many order. This is not a cheap tie. Most people want to be kajillionaires. That's the dream. That's how they get you hooked. Hooked on sugar, hooked on caffeine. Ha ha ha, cry, cry, cry. Me, I prefer to just skip. So do I. February? March, April? Uh, we may have to pay an installment. Rent is an installment. It's a monthly installment. They are real characters, super unique. But you vouch for them, right? She learned to forge before she learned to write. Oh, actually, that's how she did learn to write. My favorite movies are the Ocean Eleven movies. This is exactly the kind of thing that I've been wanting. So what do your parents do, hon? Hon. You've never called me that. But you could if it was a job though, right? So Kajillionaire is her third movie. It stars Evan Rachel Wood as, get ready for this, Old Dolio. Yeah, and Old Dolio's life is turned upside down when her criminal parents invite an outsider to join them on a major heist they're planning. So they're kind of a family of like miserable con artists but i almost think like con and heist are almost too glamorous of words at one point richard jenkins old dolio they're scams right i think he describes himself as like a skimmer um just yeah, like, he's just skimming off the top he says he's exactly. just getting by just trying to take a little bit not trying to be a part of the system not trying to rewire the system not trying to exploit the system just like you know, taken, running away with whatever crumbs come off the weird gears of the system. Right. Yeah, they're not necessarily like the fox in the hen house. They're kind of like raccoons. Yes. Yeah. They're just like going through people's garbage and seeing like what they can take without. And they get a little bit more confident and bold the more success that they have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
the mother is played by Deborah Winger. I don't think. Oh, it's Robert and Teresa. I did not. I didn't actually think they had names. Um, yeah, Robert and Teresa are the parents. Richard Jenkins and Deborah Winger. One of the things that is heisty about it is like they they really because they're anxious people feel feel the stakes of these. But it's like their their big gambit is just a a simple you know baggage like we lost a bag and we're going to collect the traveler's insurance. Like it's a it's a it's a bore. It's a drab scam. Right. Yeah, the only thing big about it is that it's going to even them out on three months back rent. Right. And so on a flight uh, back from New York to L.A., because they have to go to pretend to lose the bag, they meet Melanie, played by Gina Rodriguez, um, who is such an interesting character. She's one of the quote-unquote normal people, I guess you would say. Um, And... She both, I think, is sort of looking for excitement and um, has these sort of like more understated parallels to their same, like a, some similar problems right. that old. Yeah, Olio's she's having. sadder in a more mainstream way. Exactly, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. <laughs> um, but yeah, she joins the she joins the team. Can we first talk about the performances? Yes. So I think you can't watch this movie without having some sort of visceral reaction to the Evan Rachel Wood old Dolio performance. Uh, And let me say off the bat, if you haven't seen the trailer for this, which I recommend you watching, if not the film in earnest when you can, uh, she's doing like a deep voice. Yeah, it's not an exaggeration to say that she sounds like Napoleon Dynamite. She's doing like a Jason Muse from the Kevin Smith movies Halloween costume or something. Okay. She's got this like long, dirty hair. She's doing this like sort of weird voice and she's got these baggy kind of like 90s clothes on. Right. I mean, you realize pretty quickly that it hints at trauma. Uh, but in the first few moments when she's kind of like dancing her way into the post office, yeah. it does kind of look like uh, Jay. For outside sure. the <laughs> outside the the convenience store slash video shop, yeah, with like a green track jacket that reminded me of like what uh, Catherine O'Hara and Fred Willard wear in Waiting for Guffman when they're auditioning. These are similar people, yeah. If there was like a Skimmers conference at the Javits Center or something, <laughs> uh, these would be the people interviewed, talking about their bubble, living in their bubble office. Right. So I suppose one of the most like cough, the part that is sort of Kaufman-esque is that they live uh, in an office building that's adjacent to a soap factory, a place called Bubbles Inc. Um, and every day they experience something that one of the things I really like about this script is um, because they are skimmers and that is their profession. They're literally less. skimming bubbles off the wall at one yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. And, but they also like they have to give names to stuff so they call this the leak like we don't want to be late for the leak um when every day the bubbles come in and they have to take big off gray office trash cans and get them off the yeah wall. otherwise the office will eventually just disintegrate because of the water damage that's right um, yeah so this is some of the weirdness the more cartoony stuff right but you also have like three the movie lets you into like three sort of cartoon character characters you know with richard jenkins and deborah winger uh 
they're I mean they're they're cuckoo for cocoa puffs. They're you know slinking around the wall. So like the you know the proprietor of Bubbles Inc. and their landlord like doesn't catch them. Mm-hmm. You know I mean even just the way Richard Jenkins, Jenkins speaks is like such a so outrageously like he goes down these like different warrens of thought that come out with sort of, Oh, well I've decided how this thing works. Do you know that iPhones were actually created by the military? Right. But then the truer parts of the human interaction come to bear when they meet the normal people. And and I actually think that's probably the best trick of the movie is on the one hand you have old Dolio is like, the most overtly cartoonish character in any of these movies, but say the first time that she gets a, um, she's trying to, she's trying to redeem this like massage coupon for cash. And the masseuse is divine joy Randolph, who you would know from uh, high fidelity Hulu show and uh, Dolomite is my name. Um, yes. She gives a really good kind of understated, worried performance in the two minutes that she has in this movie. Um, because old Dolio, you know, tries to redeem a shortened version of the massage because the parents are waiting outside, but she, um, she she freaks out if she's touched, and Divine Joy Randolph's character ends up giving this sort of like, you know, massage with no actual physical contact, um, and you just see how worried she is for this person, and that kind of set the tone for me as a viewer of like, underneath this haircut and this triple XL men's <laughs> sweatsuit. Um, is somebody who's in very serious pain. And I, I managed to feel both things. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, there are some scenes in here that are like master's classes of, you know, the that Miranda July real world bumping up against that Miranda July, like the fantasy that comes out of pain kind of thing. Um, and these fantastical characters that come out of, you know, these bleak, series of events uh, oftentimes and we never really get to the thing thing that old dolia is dealing with i mean we get that like her parents fucked her up real good uh, yeah. by the end of the movie um but yeah i mean things like that there's something about it if i can tip my hand a little bit that when you have such a great nuanced performance like the divine joy randolph one in that moment where she's not actually touching her there's something that grates a little bit against just how not serious evan rachel wood is playing it or so so serious as to be kind of comical like i mean that's the kind of weird thing about this movie going into it i mean we're doing these sort of in reverse here but the idea that like the reason you go to see a miranda july movie is the weird miranda july character her playing like a version of herself or her performance art at the center of the narrative and this one has to instead be carried by evan rachel wood and i think for me like getting into like having seen these two movies and then be asked to act as the lead character in a third one you can see how that's a tall order and i don't know for me when she's up against Divine Joy Randolph, when she's up against Gina Rodriguez, um, I'm more drawn to the person she's playing against. Mm-hmm. I'm not really in the moment with Evan Rachel Wood. I think that makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, she's been stripped of a lot of personality, this character, by her by her parents. And I think the parents are great, too. Because with Richard Jenkins, you know how easy it is for him to be such a presence of warmth on screen and for him to kind of like 
suck all that out um, by just kind of being so... The cruelest thing about the parents' relationship to her is that they have chosen this life and forced her into this life and fancy themselves the designer of all the cons, but they're too cowardly to ever take the lead. Like she's the one through the door, um, on every single one of these. And the tension really comes from like how weird and warm they are to, uh, Melanie, Gina Rodriguez. Um, yeah, they're impassioned followers, uh, even at the best of times. And that's the thing too, because ultimately, after the suitcase scam at the airport and when Gina Rodriguez kind of comes in as the usurper of power and the new leader of the group because she had not even a particularly good idea about the antiques, but just an idea. Right. <laughs> uh, there's something kind of, you know, attractive about her to these parents looking for some direction. I mean, they're looking for an equal, if not someone who's smarter than them. They're like henchmen without a villain. You know, they're like the, they reminded me a bit of the three kids in the bathtub off to find, uh, get the Sandy claws in uh, nightmare before Christmas. Like they don't actually have their own thing. It was like, yeah, they need the Oogie Boogie man. So they're looking for, so Gina Rodriguez becomes the Oogie Boogie when, Evan Rachel Wood like wants to get out of like the cycle of trauma that she's in with them. Let's talk openly about it. I think we had different experiences uh, watching this movie. It was a tearjerker in my house um, because of the what's essentially like leveraged uh, down the stretch is you know whether these parents can change. There's a, it's the concept of attachment theory. Where, like, if you were raised a certain way by your parents, does that affect the way you form relationships for the rest of your life? And that's where all the third act uh, conflict and tragedy and triumph come from, is can old Dolio fashion anything but this sort of, like, heartless relationship that she's had? Um, But I know that it wasn't as gripping for you. So please, tell your truth. When you say tear-jerking at your house, do you mean you Sarah and then you're kind of like in for at least for this episode aptly named dog July yeah it was just a close-up shot of her feet like trying to (laughs) trying to paw her way to some sort of understanding about this movie that's right we watched Miranda July's three movies (laughs) and I died (laughs) (laughs) that's a the future joke we'll get there next that's right I don't know. Lucy and I really were quite bored by this movie. Uh, and I think my issue with it, which frankly like isn't that much of an issue with the other ones, is that it really does lack that rope that like pulls it back down to earth. You know, it doesn't have that thing where there's just like a cosmic occurrence or something. I mean, it, it does have that with the spoiler I mean, they're having like tremors throughout the movie. So when there is the tremor, they fashion the big one. Mm -hmm. There is that cosmic happening, but it's almost like this movie is almost a satire of Miranda July movies. If it's like, oh, here's a bunch of weirdos and here's a bunch of normal sad people and here's a bunch of like weird shit that can happen that's like kind of real and kind of L.A. mythology and it's all an allegory about pain and trauma. And... I don't know. I just, I didn't, 
I think the other two movies are laugh out loud funny. In this one, I was like waiting to laugh. Like I was waiting for that like weird misunderstanding that, you know, because I think what's what's cool about her sort of weirdo characters is that they're like cute and they're kind of like fuzzy and understandable and you like want them to succeed. And I guess with old Dolio, because you like quickly set her up as a as sort of a, a scam artist, a criminal, it's hard to maybe root for her in that same way, you know, that you see the Miranda July weirdo that she's playing kind of deteriorate her age. That's interesting. Cause I feel like I just have a different read on all these movies. Then I don't necessarily think I don't get cuteness or fuzziness from her other movies so much as a kind of like a, you know, a rawness of nerves, like mixing with a little compassion and I, for some reason, you t- you take it like ten percent higher, and this one, this allegory just it worked better for me, um, especially because I feel like the nor the quote unquote normal people um, are you know still overplaying it. Like you still get a little like Hollywood charm from Gina Rodriguez. I think she's not like she's not a drab. She's not working at the shoe store. Um, she's beautiful, and her like wardrobes become the sort of object of some conversation because of how old Dolio likes to dress. Um, yeah, this one is like th- longer on just some moviness, but it, I don't know, it worked for me. Do you want to cut to spoilers real quick? You got anything else you want to say for... I mean, we can sort of let the, the floodgate open a little and, and see, what, see what we end up talking about. All right, folks, if you really want to see Kajillionaire, um, and I would encourage you to, I don't know where Noah's going to land. Um, you know, skip like uh, five, seven minutes ahead. Lonely, I'm Mr. Lonely. I have nobody for my own. I really love that this movie almost has nothing to say about the fact that it is a, a queer romance at its center um, and the way that that's sort of like presented as the absolute centerpiece of the movie, but without comment was something I really appreciated. Like sex is such an interesting thing in all of these movies and who it's between and what are the odd sort of transgressions that might happen. But it's just so interesting that Melanie, the Gina Rodriguez character, like wants to be physical with old Dolio for like a good chunk of the movie. And old Dolio is just like not having that because she can't be touched by anyone. But, um, but I just, I, the payoff, man, I thought the payoff was huge in this movie. I agree that it is huge in the context of the movie. I just wish that was their love story was more of the movie. Mm -hmm. You know, I think when it becomes, once we lose the parents and we're just focused on them, you know, it goes from being like that Kaufman-esque, like, oh, they're living in the bubble factory and they have to clean the bubbles up every three hours to just like a kind of middle of the road, quirky, indie, romantic coming together kind of thing. It's like, oh, your parents never made you pancakes. Like, let's let's get the stuff to make you pancakes. And oh, you know, you haven't done this and that. Like to, to for me, that didn't have the effect I think that was intended because it felt like such an easy kind of trope of, oh, here's how we, you know, socialize this person and, and return them to whatever thing that they need to have a productive life or whatever. Um, 
You know, so I don't know that the abrupt lack of weirdness sort of punctuated by that pretty cringy scene. I mean, it's cringy like in a, a matter of fact way, but the the hot tub scene, yeah. you know, how I don't know. Worried, it's how just worried like, I mean, were you that they were going to murder Melanie? Zero percent. Oh, okay. All right. I, I mean, as you said, you know, earlier on, they don't have the the agency to do that. Yeah, they don't have the courage to, to do something so bold. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like that scene made me deeply uneasy because like, that's kind of the scene that is never in the other movies that, you know, like you feel like might be coming, mm-hmm. you know, the other two are kind of like, you know, when is someone going to be a fucking creep, you know, and, and go for it. And they never really do in the other ones. So right. seeing this one actually play out, like, I don't know. I mean, you can have a movie like that. I mean, that's fine. That's what this movie is. But I think when you and I look at movies together, we're looking at, okay, does the script make sense? You know, is it meaningful? But also on the other side, like, do you want to watch a movie where, like, these two old people kind of, like, <laughs> corner this young woman who, who clearly needs, you know, something in her life before she can, you know, have full ability to control everything? be taken advantage of over a hot tub? I think the answer for you is no. The answer for me, yeah. I, I think it, I think ultimately it may be a no. That's cool. I think this is a, a pretty great parable on um, dealing with having uh, parental flaws, as all parents do. Um, ones that are people who tend toward uh, coldness and turning on and off their ability to seem like living, feeling humans seems like a particularly uh, hurtful but common affliction. I think it's not uncommon. Um, so for me, I know it's I know it's a little tidy, but um, I think the final note of like, yeah, of course your parents are who they are, and of course they're not going to change. And yes, your freedom is in the acknowledgement of that fact. Um, Spoke to me very loudly. But isn't that allegory like kind of a a naive thing to make a movie about? Like there's, there's been 50 years of cinema, you know, of, of bad parents not changing. So like to hinge the dramatic irony on the fact that like she they stole the thing that they said they were going to steal, but they also like gave you enough shit to return to add up to being a third of your cut. Like, it just felt so obvious to me. Like, that's that's what was maybe frustrating and kind of boring is, like, I, I could see the whole movie playing out very quickly into it. Hmm. You know, I... it's like the, you have, like, the jealousy between siblings. You have the bad parents being bad parents and, like, making a huge gesture to try to prove that they're not bad parents. And then they're ultimately bad parents. And like the little things they give you add up to your third of the emotional thing you're looking for. But like, what's new about that? You know, that's the thing. If you really boil the thing down to its base, it's kind of boring. You know, it's dressed up in this sort of, you know, bizarre package. But ultimately, like the story itself did not feel as refreshing and as sort of, you know, new as the other two movies did. I disagree. I don't know. It, it means more to me, I think, that this movie is able to identify something true about life, whereas the other two, I think, identify things that are funny about life. And I prefer the answer rather than the kind of uh, just the question. 
I think the stronger choice would have her make a choice. The only people who are making choices in this movie are the people around old Dolio. It's Gina Rodriguez making choices. She's the one who laughs it off at the end, not old Dolio when the That's parents fair. steal all of You're their right. stuff. And then the fact that she, you know, there there could have been a moment where it's like, I'm not going to go to this dinner. You know, here is your cut of whatever. Here are the gifts back to you. But ultimately, they're just making the best of a situation they're totally out of control over. The The whole narrative device of the the big one or, or the earthquake or whatever is coming is just in parallel to the parents. It's just a person holding on to the things that are nailed down around them, you know, in fear of the world crumbling in when the big one comes. And the big one is clearly her parents. But that's such an easy thing. to. That's such an easy narrative parallel to me it all just felt so like of course this movie's going to climax with you know an earthquake and then the monologue in the when she wakes up from it or something in the gas station where she's like do you try everything it's like i thought that was the laugh out loud funny part of the movie that you say was missing where she's just like i did laugh when like the one guy walks into the gas station and has just wants nothing to do with her (laughs) right Uh, let's tell people real quick how we rate movies. On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories. A good or bad for technical quality, and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good, bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered, unfortunately, include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, Master. Got all that? Time for a rating. I do want to tip my hat to you. You are right. Old Dolio, if in analyzing this structure, is the baby who continues to see what like imprints will hold. She is not... She does not have a lot of agency. That's correctly identified. I don't think this is a perfect movie. Um, Miranda July is never going to be the strongest visualist in the world. There, this is not a movie where I think that the shots are great. Um, but I think her taste is pretty interesting. And for me, the way this movie cinches together is something I enjoy more than the other two. This one for me is a good good. Conversely, I'm going to have to say bad, bad. I think that the Evan Rachel Wood performance is her trying to and almost misreading like what's compelling about Miranda July as the star of the previous two movies in that she's like the weirdo who things happen to that like carries the narrative forward. But ultimately, like it feels more like a caricature than a performance. Uh, And I think the other people in it do a great job but are never able to find that same beat with her so ultimately 
yes, I'm more interested in Gina Rodriguez having this loaded conversation with her mother on the phone than I am when the camera pans back to seeing Evan Rachel Wood like crawling on the asphalt. Um, so yeah, I think that's where I'm at. All right. Do you want to go to the future next or me and you and everyone we know next? Let's go to me and you. Okay. So this is where it starts for Miranda July helming feature films. 2005 romantic comedy. Me and you and everyone we know. Noah, what's our synopsis? A lonely shoe salesman and an eccentric performance artist struggle (laughs) to connect in this unique take on contemporary life. If you really love me, then let's make a vow. Repeat after me. I'm gonna be free. I'm gonna be free. Now let's kiss to make it real, okay? Okay. You weren't my children, would you think that guy looks okay? Are you mad at us? Yeah, totally. I think you look good. Okay, good. Did you want to try these on? No. So those are comfortable? They kind of rub my ankles, but all shoes do that. You think you deserve that pain, but you don't. I want to be swept off my feet, you know? I want my children to have magical powers. I, I am prepared for amazing things to happen. The performance artist is Miranda July. The shoe salesman is John Hawks. Um, and there's... Playing Christine and Richard, respectively. And then there's this gallery of their co-workers and their friends and their kids. And children. And yeah. their children, yeah. And uh, the, the children's weird friends who sometimes are uh, sexually interested in the co-workers. <laughs> um, but yeah, the the poster for this one is is you know those two and then everyone else circling them upside down, and I think that's kind of accurate to how people are oriented in this movie as well. Miranda July goes into it with an understanding of at least in this moment in time in two thousand five, like what indie cinema looks like, and right. you know almost in like the Todd Salons way, kind of is like, well, if the main narrative isn't. <laughs> your cup of tea i'm gonna throw in four more just to make sure there's a little something for everybody and this thing doesn't end up you know like kajillionaire uh or a bit too weird and focused on one thing um so yeah in it you have of course the the shoe salesman who's getting the divorce and that's uh john hawks uh and he's got these two kids who are they're so hilarious. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them's like a mid teenager and the other one's like six or seven. Uh, and they both have these like sort of, they almost look like uh, a Hamish Linklater in the next movie in terms of just like this wild mess of hair. Yeah. Uh, so they're easy to spot like in like a middle shot, which is super interesting. Um, but they're two kids sort of in that millennial space, you know, or a little bit, earlier or later uh, where it's them against the computer screen Mm -hmm. in many ways, you know, and and reaching out into the world. So you see them like going from innocently, you know, putting 
punctuation points together to make like a tiger thing in Microsoft Word to them like in a sex chat on AIM, (laughs) uh, you know, just trying to have a couple laughs. Um, And then on the other side of it, he's got this coworker, John Hawks does, um, played by Brad William Henke. Wow. Good to know about Brad. But he, yeah, he's one of the other shoe salesmen. uh, And of course... He's like this lonely guy living in this deadbeat apartment in L.A. And he strikes up a conversation with these two young girls, uh, the otherwise unknown actresses, uh, Natasha Slayton and Najara Townsend, Mm -hmm. uh, about like what they're almost these. So these two teens are kind of like just walking down the street or waiting at the bus stop or something. And they kind of strike up a dialogue with this 30 something year old man, maybe even older about like, what's life like when we get to the 18 plus here? Mm -hmm. Like what would our interaction be, you know, if we were of age and they get into this like very, (laughs) very like kid gloves kind of like sexual banter with each other Mm -hmm. in the form of this older man on the back of like, what are like, mailings that he's getting or mm-hmm. posters that he's finding he like writes on the white background these like pretty goofy sexual come-ons to them that they're equally horrified and amused by because it, they feel like adults in that moment like reading this this smut uh and then it it of course leads to an inevitable interaction or lack of interaction that brings in of course the children of john hawks these two brothers uh and they're one of their first sexual experiences so at one point in the movie when they're talking about the the museum exhibit you kind of for a second see a flicker of its north star which is like to make an art piece about life in the digital age and it's really interesting to think about what felt like a cutting edge 2005 digital age art piece because it our interactions with computers at that time, you just sort of got like the wisps or the walls of the ghost in the machine. Like you don't have social media, so it's not all about seeing yourself, but rather it's about seeing the eerie white of the of the chat room or like what you can make with semicolons or um, you know emojis before emojis, like punctuation before right. there were actual visualizations, famously enough. But it's also yeah. you know it turns sex hypothetical. Um, in all of these cases, and when these well, the only time sex is actually real, it's still hypothetical. Um, talking about the right. the oral sex contest, or not a contest, but like a survey, <laughs> almost. It's a census of uh, of sorts. Sure, yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting too how intentionally or otherwise, Miranda July interrogates the digital world in like a very analog way. You know, like her protagonist is making like a video that is using mixed media, but the mixed media she's using, she's recording it simultaneously, like using a microphone held up to her mouth and like a photo that she's repurposed. And to get the sound effect of the ocean, she's turning her staticky TV up and down. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you're still using a four track kind of 
analog sound system that you've invented in the mini DV of this camcorder here. And then you're running over with a VHS tape. So it is interesting at 2005. I mean, it's kind of a period piece in that sense. You know, how far technology had come and frankly hadn't come. You know, and maybe she's pointing that out too because like what is the difference between, you know, writing in a sex chat that you want to like – have your poop go into someone else's butthole and then poop back into each other's buttholes than it is, you know, for this 35 year old man to be writing on the back of menus that he like wants to like see their slippery nipples. You know, it's still people communicating at people who have no idea like who this person is. But I also think in this movie, you know, because it is a debut, because it comes from the performance art space, it's deeply concerned with, the watch value of it and like how fun it is. And I think unlike the, the most recent one, there are a lot of like laugh out loud moments. Like even like the, the poop thing that I just talked about, like is treated with such care and, and decency that it's just so funny that this little kid is like talking to a sad grown person and she's so sort of intrigued by this like stupid thing that a kid would say in the totally wrong context, (laughs) you know, which is so funny. And I think it says something about intimacy too. You know, there's that kind of unspoken thing and especially in indie cinema at this time too. And there's this movie called uh, flannel pajamas. Have you ever seen that? I haven't. There's a scene in there where the the girl pees in front of the guy in like kind of a non like broad comedy, like gross out humor way, but in like an intimate way. Mm -hmm. And this movie seems like it's almost commenting on the fact that like this thing is intimate. Like the, this, this bodily function is not like ha ha funny Adam Sandler movie. It's actually something quite different that speaks to, you know, people can just be gross with each other. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. What do you think of Miranda July as an actor? It's interesting. I think in this one, it really does work that thing that she's doing. I think she like has the kind of like potential explosiveness of like a Laura Dern kind of type in this one. And, but she also has sort of the cultural cachet of like a Zoe Deschanel manic pixie dream girl kind of thing. You know, there's this great kind of uh, garden stadium back and forth that her and uh, John Hawks have where they like, they're doing a bit. And like, that's sort of the, the catch of the, if if you fall for the romance of this movie, you know, you'll get into the idea of the, the bits that they're doing. Uh, So they're talking about, Oh, well the distance between where we're standing right now, walking outside this mall to where our cars are parked on opposite sides of the street. Well, that represents the relationship we're having and how long it'll last. So when we walk past the, the midpoint as accentuated by this billboard, you know, we kind of know that the relationship's dead. And of course they circle back and they make it their lives and they're a happy couple and they're playing out the whole thing. And then that, I mean, that's funny and cute and like romantic comedy, Nancy Myers or whatever, uh, Nora Ephron. But then like she takes it a beat too far and like she gets in his car. And that I think Miranda July is perfect at the performance necessary to be like, wait, are you guys, she's almost like a a performer on stage being heckled. And it's like, she doesn't quite know how to, 
deal with the things she wasn't expecting because like they're not saying the line that they're supposed to. Mm-hmm. And like mm-hmm. that yeah. to He's me like, was like that's the real power of of her as an actor. I think it's a I'm gonna half agree. I think one of the things that I really appreciate about both this and the next movie is that she could very easily make herself look good like in a more commercial version of this indie movie in the Zoe Deschanel version where she's just like cute and she always has the right answer. Uh, and the whole movie is calibrated to be like, isn't this a quirky person just like so adorable, but she never lets the movies do that, which I really appreciate on an intellectual level. But then what I feel I'm missing actually sometimes is her character is not charming enough for me to understand why the movie is still anchored around this relationship with John Hawks. Cause I wasn't, I wasn't other than the fact that they're both like lonely and weird. And that's like set up from the beginning. Um, I'm not buying all the way in cause I'm missing some of that magic. So it's a double edged sword for me. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly not, I think the most compelling story or narrative in the main thrust of the movie. Like I really do think this movie hangs on the, different kids and different sets of kids, like whether it's the younger brother connecting with the person online uh, Mm -hmm. or there's that, I mean, in talking about cute and clever and kind of fuzzy that I I was referencing earlier, like there's this moment where the person on the internet asks like this six year old boy, like, are you touching yourself? And the camera pans down (laughs) his like little cute hands. And he notices the two fingers, like one finger from one hand is touching the finger from the other hand. And he writes back. Yes. Yeah. Because he is in fact in that moment touching himself. And I think things like that, like seeing the kid, like not quite understand what he's saying, but then also know that he's connected with someone enough that, he can both say that he trusts them and then sort of the act of kindness that he gives this woman at the end yeah. into, into be not like it's everything that Kajillionaire is not like Kajillionaire is assured that everyone is out to hurt you and you know, everything needs to be unpacked and touching sort of questionable and maybe bad. Well, this one on the other end of the spectrum and maybe as problematically is that like, even nice guys are sexual predators for fun every once in a while. Like mm. even, you know, once in a while, a six-year-old and a 35-year-old will like end up having like a, a nice tender moment together. And I don't know that that's any more acceptable uh, than the other, but it, it makes for, I think, a more intriguing movie because it doesn't seem afraid of those connections between characters, as outrageous as they are. What 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 am I supposed to do with a lonely museum docent giving a quick kiss on the mouth to a six year old stranger? <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, and yeah, I, I do think people would probably be pretty fucking afraid to put that in a movie today. But it's not like anything got hurt. It's not like, not like anybody got hurt or that that character was going to do anything else. But I like what you said about the the whole the back and forth for everything this movie does a good generational job of being like, so that means one thing to the six-year-old, right? And that means another thing to his, like, 14-year-old brother who's like, this is a very provocative, like, sex thing I'm going to type in here. And then it means something totally different to the 35-year-old who's probably seen it all and is bored of all the sexual things that she's encountered. And it's like, did someone just, like, invent new <laughs> crazy, <laughs> like, new ways right. of intimacy? It's like, uh, yeah. Or just someone put out into the world the the audacity to do something beyond 
what normal people do, I -hmm. think is what's more appealing to her. Uh, Because that's really like her ethos too when it comes to the art. She just like is bored by everything. And the things that she isn't bored by, she's embarrassed that she's not bored. Like she's embarrassed to to like Miranda July's visual art. I'm not, some of the, I don't know. It it seems like a movie where all the pieces should fit together because that's the, that's what it is going for. Um, but some of them don't work for me. Like, I, I think we're supposed to feel a lot at the end about the neighbor daughter with the hope chest and then Peter being sort of interested in her later hopes and dreams, which I didn't really connect with. Um, there's some strands that don't quite work for me, but, uh, I mean, Robbie is probably the MVP of the movie, right? Young Miles Thompson. Absolutely. He definitely pulls the movie together. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the young girl neighbor who has this, like, capitalism she's slowly building in her childhood <laughs> bedroom that otherwise looks pretty idealistic. She's making her uh, own wedding registry. She's put it together. Yeah, she's collecting, yeah, she like, kitchen gadgets that won't go out of style. She no. says dowry, yeah. So I saw this movie when it came out in theaters when I was, like, a very confused 16-year-old boy. Yeah. Uh, and it loved it then. And I got to say, I really do think it holds up in a way that it is weirder and sadder and a lot more meaningful than a lot of other indie movies that like came out of this time and space. Right. Um, so, I mean, I fundamentally do agree with you. Uh, and that's why I think this one is a good good. I like that you like it. Um, I wanted to connect with it more. I'm going to give it a good bad. Good bad. Okay. Yeah. Shall we jump ahead to the future? 2011. Good one. <laughs> By the way, me and you and everyone we know in the future are both on Criterion Channel, if you have that and want to stream them. That and the future's how. on Prime. Oh, is it? There you go. Yeah, Miranda July's been doing lots of cool stuff with Criterion recently. Um, she did this cool thing about how Sex Lies in Videotape, it was like her most influential film, which is the least surprising thing I've ever heard, um, but still great to, to hear her reasons. All right, the future? When a couple decides to adopt a stray cat, their perspective on life changes radically, literally altering the course of time and space and testing their faith in each other and themselves. The couple is Miranda July and Hamish Linklater. Sophie and Jason. And this movie also does a good job of sort of like subverting some of your cute indie movie expectations. Because you see them just even in the, the lighting of their own apartment. You know, the opening scene of them on the couch by the window with their laptops makes them seem like they are much more comfortable in their kind of like um, bourgeois L.A life than they are and in fact the rest of the movie is about the unspoken ways in which that scene on the couch at the beginning was not what you thought it was no that's such a good point because you do think that they're yeah they're like hipsters yeah they're echo park hipsters or whatever and really all your actually identifying is people using apple products (laughs) and then it's then it's quickly revealed that, yeah, they're like rudderless 35-year-olds, um, which I have to tell you, Chance, <laughs> as 
you know, when I saw this in 2011, I was like, LOL, rudderless 35-year-olds. But, like, as I get closer to that, like, this movie frightened me uh, early on. You have a rudder. Do you think so? Oh, definitely. As I, like, close my MacBook here and, like, (laughs) look out the window, think about adopting a cat. (laughs) There's, like, a codependency, I think, in their plan to... So the thing is that they can't... They've adopted this cat... But its um, it its kidneys are failing, and it like really badly hurt its paw, so they can't get it until it heals for thirty days. But also, they can't be like a moment late, or else they're gonna euthanize that cat because it's overcrowded. So they try to use that thirty day window to you know live out and try to change their lives because they're like, well, once we get the cat, we can't uh, you know we really can't go even go right. out of town. They said, we'll come back for you, Papa. Papa. That's what they called me. And they called each other Sophie and Jason. Hi, we're here for an adoption. We can't release him until this comes off. He has about a month to go. The woman that was here before said that he only had six months left. If he bonds with you, he could easily hang on five years. We'll be 40 in five years. Uh, 40 is basically 50, and then... That's it for us. God, I always thought I'd be smarter. How long is 30 days? If we were dying in a month, we would definitely reprioritize. So the internet's going to be turned off in the next hour. The second you get in the door, you'll want to look up anything you need to look up. Christmas falls on a Tuesday this year. Don't look that. Oh, I don't know. I've been gearing up to do something really incredible for the last 15 years. 30 days, 30 dances. I emailed everyone. They're all waiting for it. (laughs) No one cares. I know. You're pregnant. We both are. How does it feel? It's a drag, but it's also amazing. Right, they sort of get to that, well, when push comes to shove, like, what are we going to do when the big one comes? Mm -hmm. These are all, like, when the big one comes kind of movies. Um, But this one, yeah, it's the 30 days leading up to getting this cat. And I think, like, their dependency or their codependency, as you said, Chance, is really based on not that the fact that they have the same plan. They just both have the lack of the same plan. So they don't feel strongly about doing one thing or another enough that they can have a happy life adjacent to each other. This could easily be Richard Jenkins and Deborah Winger in 30 years. This movie has a great Miranda Julyism in the sense that this 30-day plan before you adopt a cat dying of kidney failure is ridiculous. But it hits on this idea of the the incorrect, delusional, but sort of right-seeming ways that people think about time, right? Which is like they're 35 and they're like, well, in five years we're going to be 40 and that's basically 50 and the rest is loose change. Like, you, <laughs> <laughs> like, but this idea that you can't do anything with the last 20 or 30 years of your life, but you can do something with this 30-day window is insane but also speaks to delusions of youth, right? It speaks to the idea of how like the American consumer can 
do a thing, right? Like it's the 30 day diet or 30 days to get through whatever, or like Mm -hmm. the membership to something is renewed every 30 days, you know? And I really like that idea that she immediately, like it smacks of like people who set these like quarantine plans who were going to like bake something every day or like, you know, paint something or write a song or something. Well, she's like, I'm going to record a YouTube dance, a different dance every day. And she becomes so crippled uh, by the lack of creativity she comes up with that she kind of invents her own like cancellation because she hasn't done the thing she promised she was going to do that she hasn't been doing anyway because she like got rid of their internet connection. Right. Um. Yeah. And they both, they both like form a stronger connection with completely random people than they have with each other. Um, which the right Jason gets this, um, sort of fictional, like Greenpeace knockoff thing where he's like trying to sell people saplings to combat global warming and ends up keep continually going to the house of this like weird old man who sells him a hair dryer and like wants to show him like naughty Santa poems that he'd written his, right. his wife. Um, and then what's well, so, so interesting to me that like they go from like goofing around on the internet to doing what you do on the internet in real life. Like she like sort of, picks up a phone number that she finds and calls it, you know, and finds a person to connect with on the other end, just like going to a random chat room, like in me and you and everyone we know, like elicits a conversation from somebody. Mm-hmm. And yeah, with Jason, it's like, oh, I'm going to go down the wiki rabbit hole of like X, Y, and Z things. It's like, instead of doing that, I'm just going to find an old person who just like won't stop talking about like very specific things. And it's the same kind of stuff that it almost parallels, you know, what they're up to on their laptops in that opening scene, just out in the world. That's a great point, because it seems that she seems to say then that these impulses that we view as internet tropes are just human impulses. And in fact, when the when the internet creates the superstructure, the 30-day YouTube challenge, like that's the thing that falls apart because what we search for is connection, not structure. Right. And yeah, she's more interested in the people who, you know, were going to do the ice bucket challenge, but then like couldn't work up the nerve. (laughs) So just have like a puddle of, or just have a a pail full of ice water and that's it. Like that's the, that's the Miranda July character. Yep. So uh, Sophie starts having this affair with Marshall, played by uh, David Warshawski, who you recognize um, from there. He has like a bit part in There Will Be Blood. Oh, yeah. He's the train conductor who gets uh, unmercifully murked in uh, Unstoppable. (laughs) Unstoppable. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of good writing in this one as well. Um, You know, those misconnections are like the things that people think the other people mean. Um, you know, I really love the, the exchange when it's uncovered that she's, she's been in this affair and he's like, I just want to be clear that there's nothing for you to come. There's nothing here for you to come. You can't agree to anything because there's nothing for you to agree to. Mm -hmm. Like, I really love thinking about a relationship, you know, like a set of agreements. And like, if you're not putting out the question of, do you agree with this or not? Like there is no relationship. Yeah. 
I also related a lot to the line, brutal as it is, when uh, Jason said, they're, you know, they're expressing regrets over things they haven't achieved at 35. And he goes, God, you know, I really thought I'd be smarter. (laughs) 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 Which is brutal and absurdist and also like, but you kind of like, I also thought I'd be smarter right now uh than I actually am. (laughs) There's something kind of truthful about that, uh, to stick those lines in a, in a character's mouth. Um, yeah, sometimes. And I like, go ahead. I like, I thought it felt really true in that first scene too, where he like moves around a little and she's like, Oh, can you get me some water? And he's like, Oh, I'm not getting up. I was just like rearranging myself. And she's like, Oh, (laughs) that's definitely something that Lucy and I have gotten caught up in on the couch sure sure yeah it's um there's a lot of clever lines i mean one of the ones that kind of stands out really loud is the uh sophie saying like i wish i was like one notch prettier like i'm right below the point where like everyone has to make up their mind about me lines like that i think are very memorable and stand outy but i think would work better in a book because sometimes it's just like the characters just open their mouths and start saying quips like not even to each other not even to anyone that alienation sometimes rubs me a little bit the wrong way just a thought no i agree with that um and let me ask you this because i think this is like the real question when it comes to do you have the wherewithal to enjoy this movie yeah is did you think it was like tear jerking and like incredibly emotional with Paw Paw, or did you think it was the most contrived thing of this movie? I really went back. So and let me f- forth. W- w- while you think about it, let me just set it up <laughs> if you haven't seen it. Okay. This movie is punctuated with four monologues told in the voice of this cat that they're allegedly going to pick up in thirty days, um, and he has these monologues about like sleeping outside in the dark and like, you know, not knowing like what home is or love. And then these people touched him and he suddenly knew and he's, he's waiting for them and this letter he's writing them. And he knows that like, they'll come for him eventually. Maybe this just means I'm sort of like a basic asshole, but I I go back to Kajillionaire being my favorite of these. Maybe I'm just says more about me. Maybe I'm at a point in my life where it still means I still need to know that my, parents are who they are and i have no interest in this idea that like our human lives are just the beginning of our consciousness on this earth whether human or cat like that to me is still just like yeah yada yada consciousness continues give me a break (laughs) i'm maybe i'm too locked to this mortal coil i don't know what do you think i'm gonna come at it from a totally different angle and admit to you that like maybe my hesitance to emotionally open up to animals is that I have a very low threshold for like witnessing animals in pain. Ah, I see. And I got to tell you like these, like it's no more than two minutes of the total movie. Uh, deeply upset me (laughs) because like, why did they pick up this fucking cat? I tell you what half redeemed Papa's voice for me. It's like Alvin and the Chipmunk vocal fry, I guess. Like, I want to do that. Um, but the thing that sold it, the thing that sold it is when the cat narrator says the word now, they go, meow. <laughs> that's, that's when I knew that there was uh, some method that's to the That's screenwriting. Madness. Yeah. 
I'm sorry, you guys. That's screenwriting. Oh, man. And it's interesting, too, because the voice is so obviously Miranda July's voice that you have to wonder if the movie is, like, adding this weight to it that only Sophie is feeling or if it's really we're seeing the cat. Mm -hmm. Because there's really only one shot of the actual cat. The rest is just, like, the cat paws that kind of looks like the way the two of them draw out the cat uh, when they put it on the calendar. Right. Um, so to turn toward a rating, I think this one is also probably a good bad for me. Uh, I've said a lot of things that I liked about it. I think sometimes, again, I understand that, I think this is what makes them good bad. I understand that these movies want to twist against some of the traditional Hollywood, like, you know, the happiness cheap or whatever that we derive from these stories but sort of like the lack of being able to justify or continue Sophie and Jason's relationships with the people they're quote unquote cheating with um, I'm interested in what forges those connections and by the time we get to the end of the movie it's just clear to me that these people don't have a connection but I was I had that in my head at a half hour I was like oh whoa, 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 wait these two aren't actually sharing in anything so I didn't necessarily need another hour of that um, I, do you want to try to talk me to a different place on the time stopping? Yeah, I mean, that's a totally bizarre thing that happens where, I mean, you get it. It comes from that place of like trying to explore that moment, you know, much like in me and you and everyone we know when you pass that billboard and you like know the relationships over. Yeah. Like, how do you hold the relationship together when you know you know, when you find yourself like in the trappings of an eagle eye cherry song, when it's, you know, save tonight, fight the break of dawn, come tomorrow, tomorrow I'll be gone. Uh, like, what do you do with that? And do you endeavor to stop time? And then, you know, so Miranda July in this movie kind of, kind of makes it, you know, the question of does this guy like actually have superpowers or is he just like a weird dude on a beach in L.A. like, you know, sort of waving at the ocean? <laughs> You know what I love? You said an eagle-eyed cherry song like you might have picked any of them. <laughs> and then I, I have a vast library. I, oh, I have a cool. discography Can you of, name one more? of wisdom. I actually don't own the album that includes his seminal hit, Save Tonight, but I do own his follow-up album, uh, the name of which I cannot oh, remember. Can you name any songs from it? Uh, there's one called Give Me One Good Reason. It's like him and a... An acoustic guitar. Give me one good reason. You tr you have truly you truly have won the episode. You bested me there. He's the spiritual successor to what Darius Rucker left in the adult contemporary space <laughs> when he went over to country. Eagle Eye Cherry is the the sole beneficiary, and maybe like that's why Darius decided to go country because he saw what was ahead, and it was Eagle Eye Cherry. This is a great podcast. I enjoy doing it. Um, what do you want to rate the future? I agree with you. I think it's it's a good bad. I, I do like the writing in it. I like the weirdness of it. Like I didn't mind so much uh, the time stopping thing. Again, I thought what's strong about this one is it's tied, it's tethered to a reality. Like sure, it's a little bit heightened with the idea of, like they wouldn't even fucking call you before they euthanized your cat, whatever. Uh, but there's like a reality there. And I, I felt like 
you know, one of the reasons you go see a Miranda July movie is for Miranda July. I mean, sure, that's not going to last forever. And of course, she'll might want to explore characters that are not her. Uh, but I do think that this one really benefits from the fact that, like, it's her playing with the performance art she already does, like, in her real professional life. Mm-hmm. Uh and that to me was like a th- sort of meaningful second read on, you know, the art on screen. Did you see Madeline's Madeline, that Josephine Decker movie that she was in? No. It came out a couple years ago. In that movie, she actually turns the dial to being sort of like the... It's like all of these characters sort of 10 years down the line of all their worries and insecurities caught up with them and they had a really difficult teenage daughter. Um, and that is also not an easy performance to watch. But if, if you're wondering, like, does she have any other moves? She does. Um, and it's actually just being more uncomfortable. And she's, she's pretty good in that movie. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I would almost wonder if she, in the future, would just do, like, a supporting role or something in a movie ultimately not about her. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, I just don't think she quite nailed the Miranda July weird protagonist thing when it wasn't her. That's so strange. I That I think that or that she didn't do it? We haven't done an episode in forever where we actually came from completely opposite sides. And, uh... Right. Well, as I say, every time I'm testing my microphone uh, (laughs) before a new GarageBand file, Chance, your movie takes, uh, they're bad. He does do that every single time. Um, And does it get old? No, it's great. Because that's what I'm testing. I want to be able to, if you say something truly heinous, to say that your movie taste is not good. Mm Mm-hmm. I used to have a podcast with my friend Chance. <laughs> it was but then called he didn't Pod show Pod. up to the next recording for 30 days and I died. Can we just let that be the end? <laughs>